Thanks, Jeff. I love you too, man. Um, I love this place, though, really. I was just thinking as I was preparing, I first got connected at Spirit Life through Kelsey's Bible study. I guess it was about three years. Three years ago? That's probably my baby, guys. She's okay. Um, about three years ago, and I was thinking about who I was then versus who I am now and how far you guys have walked me. Um, it's absolutely incredible, and I'm incredibly grateful. So um, as I was preparing, I was like, oh, man, I don't know if I've prepared enough for like three minutes or three days. Uh, I just don't, how do you even know? I don't know. But I'll, I'll stick to the short-winded side of things. I don't think that's a phrase. Um, I did have a long-winded moment this week, though, that was kind of funny. I wanted to tell you guys about it. So my, my big girl is five, and I was driving her to kindergarten. She was having a little bit of uh, anxiety about one of her interactions with one of her teachers, and basically she thought she was annoying him. And so I, I just gave her this speech from the bottom of my heart about how you can only do as much as you can do, baby girl. You're loving and you're kind. And if somebody's annoyed with you, well, that's their problem. It's okay to be annoying. And at the end of this long spiel, she looks at me and she goes, um, Mom, you're annoying me right now. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I just told her it's okay to be annoying. I think that means it's okay to be annoyed. I couldn't even be mad. I don't know. I don't know. It made sense. Anyway, here's where I'm going today. Uh, Tasha talked a few weeks ago about fulfilling the Great Commission, and it was absolutely beautiful. She talked about evangelism. Uh, the Great Commission, by the way, I'll just read it real quick. Jesus said to his disciples right before he went back up into heaven, after he had been resurrected, the last thing he said to them, um, his disciples, we are, we are now his disciples as well, um, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Tasha touched on the evangelism side of that. <clears throat> and um, I've just been thinking about the Great Commission and, and our responsibility and what it looks like and how we live it. So I figured the best place to go if I wanted to learn about the Great Commission was the man himself, Jesus, and um, just look at the life that he lived, because if anybody fulfilled it, it was him. And um, not only did he make it possible for us to be disciples, but um, so I've been taking a look at his life lately, and um, basically, he was just really good at this. Um, the first thing that I noticed that you can't help but notice when you look at Jesus' life is that he is, he is saturated in, in kingdom principles that absolutely shock people because of their counterculturalness, their otherworldliness. There's nothing like it. He's weird because nobody's ever seen anything like this man walking around in a man dress and sandals. Um, I've seen The Chosen. I know that's how he dresses. Um, <laughs> So it's obvious, it's obvious when you look at his life that there's something going on. And that's the first thing that I notice. Um, it's exciting, it's exciting to think about being that set apart, to have that same spirit in us that makes us weird like that in a good way. I say that with all of the affection possible because it's the most beautiful weird imaginable, you know. Um, it's exciting to think about being so set apart. 
And the next thing I noticed was that he only did what he saw the Father doing, like he mentioned in John 5.19. He was connected to the source of life. There was, there was no discretion there. It was whatever God downloaded, that's what he went and did. Um, my father-in-law likes to use the term download when he talks about what God speaks to him, but I don't know, Stan, you don't use computers, computers much, so that always makes me laugh. <laughs> um, anyway... Uh, the next thing I noticed was how he demonstrated God's power. Man, that was, that was an incredible pull. Walking on the water, healing people, performing miracles. The way he demonstrated the Father's power uh, inevitably drew people, drew people in. It, it, uh, I've been thinking about the Asbury revival, Asbury, Ashbury, the revival. It's incredibly exciting because the power of God changes things. So it's cool to see that going on right now and think about how the power of God working through Jesus brought change in that. And here it is. It's still here. And it's growing. Um, Jesus preached the gospel. He poured himself into a small group of people. That's something that we see that that made a huge impact. Those guys changed the world. Um, so obviously this list isn't exhaustive. But in every way that Jesus walked in the Great Commission is important, but I want to land today on compassion, and specifically mercy is where I'm headed, because it's just heavy on my heart that as a church we're compassionate and that we're merciful. Um, that That's what breaks down the walls. That's what gets us in. That's how we connect. Is the, It's the, the mercy of Christ. It's his compassion that opens people's hearts. It's just a powerful way to introduce somebody to Jesus. And that's heavy on my heart that that's who we are as the church. So um, you can't help but notice Jesus' compassion in the Gospels. He was moved by the people he encountered. Matthew says he had pity on them. Uh, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion. He was comp kind by providing for their practical needs. Um, and John, I love this. So John talks about the, I don't remember if it was the 4,000 or the 5,000, but he says Jesus saw a crowd coming towards them. And before they even got there, he was already thinking about how are we going to feed these people? Because he cared about their practical needs, because he knew that was a doorway to their hearts. He wept over them. He wept over Lazarus, even knowing he was about to raise him from the dead, because he's present with us in the middle of it, even though he knows the end. He's present with us. Um, yeah, I can just continually move by compassion. And that's what I want for us. Um, in his compassion, in Jesus' compassion, he showed absolutely incredible mercy. This is where I want to land today because when we as the body of Christ are merciful, we're absolutely captivating. If the siren's call of, of mercy goes out from our church, we're absolutely irresistible. You can't resist that because you've never met someone who wasn't broken. Everyone you've ever met is hurting and needs that mercy. And when that's our call, people just can't help but be drawn to us. Um, I'm going to start today with the opposite of mercy, which is condemnation. Getting what you deserve. So mercy is, is getting what you don't deserve. Or not, rather, let's say not getting what you deserve. 
Condemnation is it's getting what you deserve. So Jesus has a, con- a conversation with Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, uh, a, a guy that really loves the law. And so he's having a hard time wrapping his mind around how Jesus lives his life. So we're very familiar with John 3.16. I'm going to read a little past that today. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. That really struck me. Um, the world doesn't need to be condemned again because it already is. It has, it's already condemned. It needs to be shown the alternative. That's what we have to offer. We have the alternative rather than what they're already standing in. Um, I was thinking about my children and ice cream cones. My girls love ice cream cones. My girls are five and three and one, and they're, they're ice cream lovers because who isn't? So I'm thinking about specifically my little river girl. She's three, and she's just a mess, a beautiful little mess. And you hand her an ice cream cone, and it's so painful to watch her eat it because it's just dripping down the cone, all over her clothes, all over her face. It's just dripping. Um, when I hand River the ice cream cone, I don't need to tell her, that's going to melt because it's melting already. What I need to tell River is the alternative. I need to teach River basic ice cream cone maintenance <laughs> because it's melting already. She doesn't need to know that. She needs to know what to do about it. Like, you know how you lick around the bottom of the cone and then it just kind of... That's what River needs to know. That is the alternative to condemnation is ice cream cone maintenance. No. Um, so, so on to mercy. Jesus' message is mercy. He says it, and he does it. He's the ultimate example of it. Um, He died for it. He rose again, and and that ushered us into his grace. Um, But I'm going to focus on a couple instances of his mercy today. Because I love it. It's It's just absolutely beautiful how he lived his life. I think I've said absolutely a lot. I feel strongly. Um, So Matthew. Matthew 9 is where I'm reading. I read the English Standard Version if you're pulling it up on your phone. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with those tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have, not, I have come... For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's a beautiful picture. Absolutely beautiful. I said it again. Somebody should just uh, keep a counter. Um, Jesus doesn't withdraw from people doing bad things. He calls them up. He brings them in. He loves them. So he sees this guy. Just imagine. Okay, so tax collectors in this time are the, the scum buckets of the earth. They are collecting taxes from the Jews on behalf of the Roman government and keeping some for themselves. Absolute scumbuckets. 
People hated him. And Jesus loved him. Anyway, so Jesus is walking by. He sees scumbucket Matthew sitting in his tax collector booth. And he's like, there's my guy. Love that dude. Matthew, hey. <laughs> what? Doesn't make any sense. That's mercy, you guys. It's weird. It's crazy. It's beautiful. So he pursues Matthew. He befriends him. His life is redeemed. And this man writes the first book of the New Testament. Just like that. That's the power. That's the power of mercy. It's cool. So then Jesus, uh, back to what Jesus said, uh, he then instructs the Pharisees. Well, he instructs the Pharisees on the importance of mercy here. He says it's the sick who need a doctor, which makes a lot of sense when you think about it that way. It's really hard to think about it that way when you're actually thinking about your life, but it makes sense you know, theoretically, <laughs> he says, these people are not well, and I have the cure. Who, who else would I hang out with? They're lost. I got the math. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Just, just makes sense. Um, when we get a hold of this, our priorities change. When we start to understand that the people around us need something, that's obvious, glaringly obvious. They need something. And when we realize it's inside of us, we have it. Jesus offers it to us freely. It changes things. Our hearts towards them change. Our priorities change. Um, Jesus calls us the salt and light because we've got something. We're distinct, and we flip on the light in that darkness. It's a privilege. It's a, it's a pri I almost said absolutely. I didn't. It's an absolute. Shoot. It's a privilege. Okay. <laughs> anyway, on a related note, kind of related, has anybody ever seen Forrest Gump? Okay, I'm not going to wholeheartedly recommend this movie for just anybody to willy-nilly get in there and watch it because there's some adult content. But this is a beautiful movie. There's a, there's a scene that I have just never been able to shake since the first time I watched it. So Forrest Gump is this kid with braces on his legs, uh, doesn't talk like everyone else, doesn't, doesn't act like everyone else. And his first day going to school, his mom walks him to the school bus and he climbs on the school bus. And as he walks down the aisle, every kid on the bus says, can't sit here. Seat's taken. Can't sit here. And then this sweet little angel of a girl says, you can sit here if you want. It's little Jenny. And Jenny is a picture of mercy in that moment. And that's who we get to be, because the world, everywhere they go, they meet people who have nothing to give them. Because this is not a natural principle, this mercy. There's no imitation for it in the world, because it only comes from Jesus. So when we are mercy to the world, they've never seen anything like it. Being that soft place to land, what a privilege giving people some margin when they've never had any because it is not natural to meet people with something to give. And it is not natural to meet people who are giving you more than they have. But we get to do that as Jesus followers because we tap into the flow of God's grace. My dad used to preach this sermon about God's grace being like a faucet that you just turn on and then you just freely give because you've freely received and it's beautiful. That's us. That's what we get to do. Jenny, you're all Jennies, and that is a real Jenny back there. Um, 
It's a privilege to be Jenny in the world, just scooping grace on people who've never seen anything like it. We're called to go into the world because we have what it needs. Um, so in keeping with mercy, Jesus did not tolerate people who were hung up on the law. Um, I'm going to take a drink from my Charlie cup. That's my baby. Guys, she's cute. Oh. Taking a drink because this is important. So let me give you a little background before I jump into this. I'm going to talk about some conversations that Jesus had, some things that he said. He's not talking about people who are confused but generally, genuinely seeking. He's talking about people who have rejected him and are embracing the law as the way to salvation. So he feels strongly about this one. And he actually gives us a trash-talking lesson in Matthew. So here are some of the names that he has for the Pharisees. He calls them blind fools, blind guides, blind men. I like this one a lot. Full of dead people's bones. That's a good one. Hypocrites, servants, serpents, brood of vipers. Obviously, he feels very strongly about this. But when you consider the circumstances, when you consider what Paul says in Galatians. Let's see, where am I? You, you understand his passion. Uh, Paul says, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He did not die needlessly. Um, Jesus needs people to understand the law was just holding his place. And he's here now. The fulfillment is here now. Those hoops, those rituals, they're not for you anymore. So come on. <laughs> I am the way, Jesus says. I am the truth. I am the life. Um. So Jesus has some, some big, harsh, I don't know what the word, you can figure out what word I mean when you, when you hear it, some thoughts on when the law is the loudest message. Um, in Matthew 23, there we go, Jesus tells the crowds of people who are following him, because this guy's weird and we got to know what's going on, he tells the crowds that the Pharisees, these, these people who are obsessed with the law, the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That's the law when it comes first. When we, when we greet the world with the law, we're tying up heavy burdens and we're putting them on their shoulders. And they are hard to bear. And um, he goes on to say to the Pharisees in that chapter, Woe to you, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Yikes. That is scary. People need to know that the way is Jesus. The law is powerless to save us, Paul says in Romans. Um, I'm taking a slight detour here because I think this is really important. If we're going to walk in mercy, there's something that we have to address first, and that's fear. I had a moment of clarity recently that it is hard to love the world well when we are afraid of it. But it is scary. There is so much to be afraid of. Um, we're afraid of the world's influence on us. Afraid of the world's influence on our children. That's where I am. It is scary. We're afraid of accidentally approving of something that we don't agree with. If we get too friendly. Um, we're afraid of the harm the world can do to us. The physical harm. Um, so it's tempting, it is tempting to say to the world, stop, please, look more like the church, act more like we do, stop doing the bad stuff. It scares me. 
But we cannot afford to get tripped up here. We cannot get preoccupied because we're tying up heavy burdens and we're putting them on people's shoulders when that's how we greet the world. And so dealing with our fear so we can come to the world with mercy, it is a non-negotiable. We have to do it. And I can say this today with hope because I have journeyed out of fear. That is one of the journeys that this church has brought me on. Um, oh, and then I just want to note that I'm not saying that we don't guard ourselves against the things of the world. That is not what I'm saying. The Holy Spirit can guide us in that. But what I'm saying is there's a difference between approaching something with discernment and approaching something with fear. Discernment might say, don't go there. That's not for you. Don't do that. Fear, you just can't believe fear. It's a liar. And we're not slaves to it. But that's, that's where I'm going here. So I, I, for most of my life, was a fearful person. I remember as a little girl laying in bed just racked with fear, and my parents didn't even know what to do with me. Because <laughs> every night I got out of bed and tried to get in the middle of their bed because I was just scared. And um, was it last night that Anya, last night Anya got out of bed? Anya got out of bed last night. Because she had seen a, a scene, seen a scene, yeah, that's what I said, in a movie, and it scared her. And um, so she came in afraid. And when Anya was born, I was truly terrified for that little girl because I had never conquered fear. And how would I help my daughter? She was doomed to fear as far as I knew because I had never figured out what she needed. And I have... I have seen progress in my heart. And um, I'll tell you about the journey that I went on briefly. Um, it actually started with a, a comment that Jenna Kreider made, my precious Jenna. She said something about car seats, about how you can put your car seat, kids in car seats without being afraid of what could happen to them. And that, I was like, I'm sure I was just like, uh-huh, yeah. But that comment, like, it, it stuck in me. I was like, what? You can do something to protect your children without being afraid? That was foreign to me. Um, shortly after that, my brother recommended a book called Ruthless Trust by Brennan Manning. I have never gotten past the second chapter of that book because I just keep going back and starting it over. And those, the, those two chapters have changed my life. Um, and and um, Tasha continually reminding me that Jesus can be trusted People in our lives continually speaking truth over us about God. That, that changes you. So anyway, um, I, I stand here today to tell you that there is freedom from fear, and it is in trusting Jesus. So I took this little detour because it felt really important to me to, to explain, to, to tell you what I feel like Jesus spoke to me, that fear is a roadblock to his mercy. And we have to be set free. It is not an option. This great commission is for us. It's what we're doing here. And fear is stopping us. So let's get over it. Let's do it. When we trust God, it frees us up to be merciful. So finally, the moment we've all been waiting for, Jesus shows us that there's room for truth and mercy. And we love truth. Truth is important. I am, this is not an anti-truth message. Uh, truth does not equal the law, but 
the truth out of context does feel like the law. Um, so, uh, Paul, man, Paul has lots of good things to say. Paul says in Romans 2 that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So there's two things I want to note there. God's kindness draws us in, and once we're in, we change. Paul goes on. He's got some harsh words for people who think they can just sit in God's kindness without repenting, but that's another story. The design is God's kindness leads us to repentance. So the perfect example, I think, of this is Jesus um, and the woman caught in adultery. So I'm going to head to John 8. I'm just going to paraphrase this for us today. Um, The Pharisees and the scribes brought a woman to Jesus at the temple. She's been caught in adultery. They say to Jesus, the law says we've got to stone her. What do we do? And um, Jesus tells them, man, he is wise. And his spirit is in us, you guys. Jesus tells us, tells them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So one by one, they all went away, beginning with the older ones. I think that's because we get wiser as we get older. Um, And Jesus looks at the woman and he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go on, and from now, excuse me, go, and from now on, sin no more. So the order of things there, Jesus does acknowledge the sin in this woman's life, but not until after she has encountered his mercy. Imagine if Jesus had delivered the truth first. Just picture this scenario. So the woman is standing there. Jesus has offered her no mercy. So the rocks are being hurled at her head, and Jesus says, Go and sin no more. That's condemnation. That does us no good. Truth, this is, what I, this is um, what, I, what I drew from this. Truth is a rock to the skull if it's out of context. Um, it's, it's important, but it, we deliver it in a package of mercy. Um, my mom told me a lot, a lot of times when I was growing up, Lindy, you're so right, you're wrong. <laughs> and um, I think that's truth out of context. Yeah, it, a lot. She's actually told me even more now since I've been married. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Aaron might think that no one understands what it's like to live with me. My mom understands. <laughs> um, anyway, what a relief this is. We look at our friends. We look at the world. It is messed up, and we don't have to sort it out. We just get to be agents of mercy We just get to shower them with Jesus' love. That's our privilege. That's our responsibility. Um, Jesus wasn't so right he was wrong. He softened the woman's heart with her mercy, and then he spoke truth. And that brings change. So here's the main point. People have to encounter the love of God first. That was the design. That's how it works. His mercy, his grace, his inexplicable, incomparable love is what opens the door. Law sends their walls flying up when we tell them, you're wrong, you got to stop, you got to change. But love breaks them down. Mercy just walks right through it. My father-in-law is here today. He told me last week that the Lord has been speaking this to him, that the world needs mercy and not judgment. That is what the world needs. 
So as followers of Jesus, fulfilling the Great Commission, our love has to be louder than our law. Our message to lost people has to be, come as you are, just as you are, come. Everything else follows. That's the process. That was Jesus' process, so you can trust that process. Come as you are, and everything else follows. We have responsibility to people who are converted, but that's a different responsibility, and that comes later. The first responsibility is mercy. So we root ourselves deeply in the love of the Father. That's the first step on this journey because that is what changes us. That's what turns us weird. I, I'm going to read from Hebrews 11. I didn't put this one in my notes. Hebrews 11 is, is crazy, man. It's a, it's a chapter about the people of the Old Testament and just the crazy lives that they lived. The way that they followed God when it didn't make any sense and how weird it made them. And it inspires the life out of me. Um, so Hebrews eleven thirty seven, talking about these saints. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's what happens to us when we get a hold of God's reality. Because the reality of the world is ever-present. It is always tapping into our senses and telling us, hey, this is what's real. This is what you have to be concerned about. But our job as believers is to dig deep into the Father and let us align our let him, let him align our hearts with his reality. Because his reality, it doesn't make any sense. You don't see it anywhere in the world. The kingdom of God is his reality, and we access that through our relationship with him. So that's where we start here. We start with our relationship with God, just digging deep and letting him change our hearts, change our perspectives, and he gives us love for the world. And that is what flows out of us and right into them. And that is what breaks down their walls. And, um, and another thing that, that we have to know about this is we go together. That's one of the things that protects us on this journey, on this mission. If you try to rescue someone deep out in the water who's drowning, you'll, you'll possibly drown too. If you go with other people, you're more likely to actually save that person. Have you guys ever seen those human chain videos where somebody or a dog, there's a good one about a dog, um, is drowning in the water and people form a human chain to get out to them to rescue them? Uh, I can't watch them without just sobbing. <laughs> and I think that's us. I think that's us as the body of Christ because this world is drowning. And, and as one person, if we jump out there, we might drown too. Go where God sends you. But there is discernment. Anyway, whatever. You get what I'm saying, maybe. Do you get it? Um, so we go together. We go together because that keeps us grounded. Community. We keep each other accountable. We keep each other on track. So um, 
it's scary to go by ourselves, but when we go together, there's, there's nothing to be afraid of. We go together into the world. Guys, we go together into Alexandria into the hospital, into the schools, where, into the workplaces. We go together, and we turn the tide collectively. That's the way this works. That's the plan. We must not withdraw. I felt this strong on my heart this morning. We must not withdraw because the world needs our salt and our light. The answer for the darkness is Jesus in us. So that's the plan. We doing it? <laughs> I'm going to pray for us.